It was uh, the message. It was ultimately a reminder that the hope of the good news, the hope of the gospel that we have as believers through Christ is that one day we will be delivered. One day we have something to look forward to. No matter how bad it gets, no matter how painful it gets, there is always something better to look forward to. That is the hope of the gospel that we will be saved from this world. In Christ, we will be delivered to a new heaven and a new earth and that we will receive everything our souls have ever longed for. So as we read through this chapter, it's going to just naturally raise the question, how exactly do we get there? I want to lay hold of it now. How can I make sure I have a hope that is secure and lasts and is not contingent on the circumstances of this fallen world? So how exactly do we get there? And of course, naturally, as we read this chapter, it's going to raise the question, what does it have to do with the Jewish tabernacle? Well, that's what I want to talk about this morning. And if you have your Bible, we're just going to jump into it. We're not going to hold it in the air and shout But Hebrews chapter 9, we're still in the midst of this very complicated, complex part of Hebrews, and the writer is reminding us, he actually taught us last week that the old covenant has served its purpose. It's now obsolete. One thing that was raised up just to clarify, not the law, we're not talking about the law, the law is still a tutor, it has its purpose in our lives, but the old covenant the system of, of sacrifice and priests and the, all that, that old covenant has been completed. It's been replaced now by a new covenant that is a better covenant between God and his people because it's built on better promises. He continues that discussion now in chapter 9, verse 1. says, now even the first covenant, so that's referencing the old covenant, had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. So we learned last week that the true tabernacle, again, that's this tent, that's where they, it was the temporary dwelling place as they moved around. It was put to kind of shadow the, the permanent temple that they eventually uh, erected. But this, this true tabernacle, because even that was a shadow of the, the heavenly dwelling place of God. It was all pointing to something better. The true tabernacle is in heaven. There's no geographical location. It's it's in heaven. It's everywhere. The very dwelling place of God. And so this earthly tabernacle was basically a replica, a shadow, a picture of the dwelling place. In verse 1, that's what he's saying. Is that when, when, when God gave the blueprint to Moses on Sinai for the Old Testament and the Old Covenant tabernacle, and then that would morph into the temple it, was very, it had very specific regulations. It had very sp- specific rules. So you guys know, they followed them to a T. But one thing that's interesting is, guys, most religions, in fact, a lot of the ones that, that maybe have sprung up in, in a recent time, they've been made up. They haven't been verified. They're just, they're just kind of made up. They could do as they please. They kind of adapt and change as they go. But for Israel, that wasn't an option. They had to follow the blueprint. It never changed. It had regulations and guidelines for exactly what God told them to do. Because everything that they were told to do was a picture of a greater reality. 
If they were to change it or tweak it, it would give the wrong impression of God. And so that's why we see things like him striking people dead. And I'm just I'm blown away by this because if they had tweaked it or if he had allowed for that, it would have given the wrong impression, the wrong message. It was a shadow and it had to be followed exactly. So that's what verse 1 is talking about. Let's read verse 2 through 5. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies, having a gold, golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot speak now in detail. So let me unpack a little bit of what he's saying here basically he's describing the old covenant tabernacle when it says prepared it's literally it's it was furnished so how it was furnished how it was set up in order to picture this greater reality so i'm going to see if i could kind of create this picture in your mind is relevant we'll we'll prove that later but but let's just kind of create this in your mind this morning so basically imagine the nation of israel this grand, just, just enormous people group, uh, well over a million people, and they're in the wilderness. They're all in tents. They're organized by 12 tribes, so it's this massive landscape. Just imagine millions of people all in tents, and they're arranged by their tribes, by, by their descendants of, the, you know, uh, of what family ancestry they had. So there's this massive landscape. And in this camp, nobody could run everybody had to ran because it was past tense thank you all right so they had to all right in the center of <laughs> all right in the center though of this massive landscape of tents there was the tabernacle it was all surrounding that and the tabernacle was in essence it was the mobile temple it started with a curtain or, or a fence around it, basically outlining the area. It was 75 feet wide and 150 feet long. It was always oriented from east to west. So that was like the courtyard, basically. And any Israelite was allowed into that courtyard. As you entered in from the east, the first thing you encountered was the, the altar where the sacrifices were made. Again, this, this is the courtyard. It's outdoors. So you go farther, though, beyond this, this the sacrificial uh, table. We're going to see a picture of it here in a minute. You go farther, and there's this basin of water. And that was right before the entrance of going into another tent, the actual, the actual tabernacle itself that was for the priests to cleanse themselves, to, to, to go through their ceremonial washing before they entered into the tent. At the western end, basically, again, of the courtyard was the tabernacle. Now, I just mentioned it, but it was a, a larger tent, and it was 45 feet long and 15 feet wide. And when you entered into that, the first thing or the first section inside of that big tent was called the holy place. In this text, is what we recall as the first tabernacle. You may have read that, or the first tent. Now, in that 
larger portion, this, this, this first part was actually 30 feet of it, and of course, all the way across 15 feet. So 30 of that 45 was this first temple, this first area, the holy, uh, holy place. And as soon as you enter that, only, again, only priests were allowed to enter this area. On the south wall was a, a lampstand. It was covered in gold, as we just read. It was this beautiful golden lampstand that had seven arms. We call, we call this like the, the menorah, basically. And it was virtually the, the only light in this tent that was covered. So they maintained that 24-7. That, it was just the, these candle lights. Directly across from that, on the other side of the wall, was a sacred table. It was said it was made from acacia wood. It was uh, covered with solid gold. And on top of that table, there were 12 loaves of bread, one loaf of bread for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, and, and actually, that, that was changed out often. We've got stories about that. David and his, his men eating that, you know, breaking the law. Because that bread, when it was changed out, it was reserved for the priests. They were the only ones who were able to eat that bread. So that's something that we see the bread over there, 12 of them. Um, and then there was, uh, well, I get, what else was on that? The show bread. There's something else on the table and I'm blanking now. All right, but we'll, we'll see a picture of that. So then you go on in and then you've got this, this veil as you're going in. Uh, and it's the, the holy of the holies part. But this was a, an enormous veil. It was huge. Uh, actually, the, 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 I guess, I don't know if it's proven, but the, the lore is that it took 300 priests to raise this veil. I mean, I know when I grow up and I heard about this, I was thinking just kind of like a glorified shower curtain, you know, but no, this thing was thick, 300 priests. And they say that the, the story was you could tie uh, a team of horses to each side and, and, and pull in either direction and you wouldn't tear this thing. I mean, so really it was a fabric wall. And so that separated uh, that, that, that tabernacle from one section to another section. And so within that Holy of Holies, behind that veil, there was the Ark of the Covenant. And that, inside of that, as we just read, was Aaron's rod that budded. There was a golden jar filled with manna from their time in the wilderness. And we have tablets that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai. So the Ark of the Covenant was 45 inches Long, it was 27 inches wide, 27 inches deep. It was covered in solid gold. I mean, this thing was just amazing to look at. Very detailed. It had the cherubim that, that uh, kind of over it, stretching their wings over it. The, these creatures that are always in the, the presence of God. So again, the, this comment on the veil, it's just this, this thing was amazing. And it was just woven with like purples and blues and scarlets. They say it was just like beautiful to behold. So that's essentially the was separating the presence of God was right there the, in the mercy seat on that Ark of the Covenant. And then it was separated by this veil. Another section right here with the showbread. Uh, man, I'm still blanking on what else was on that table. And then the menorah and all that was surrounded by an outer courtyard where the Israelites could go and do their sacrifices. But in that tent, only the priests would go. So that's my job of trying to put it in your picture. Let's show the video real quick. I want you guys to, to see this.
I just did that because I knew I'd butcher it and forget something. So now imagine, though, you're an Israelite. And you understand that God dwelt in the Holy of Holies, behind the veil. And you know that you cannot get anywhere close to the presence of God. You can't go in there. The closest you can get is to the outer tabernacle or to the outer courtyard. The closest you could come is right in there to, to present your offerings. So that's what he just described. And that's how it was set up according to God's design. So that's just what we went through, chapter two, uh, verse 2 through 5. Now let's read verse 6. Now, when these things have been so prepared or furnished, so if they do it exactly as God designed and wanted, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle. That's, the, again, the holy place where the incense and uh, the acacia uh, table was, the menorah, performing the divine worship. But into the second, so behind the veil, the holy of holies, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. So the priest could go into the holy place and they had various functions. Again, they went in there 24-7 to keep the candles lit. They went on there on a daily basis, but only the high priest. It was that's one guy, and he could only go back there into the presence of God once a year. And he was only allowed to go behind the veil with blood. He had to make a payment for sin. Anybody know on what day that he would do that? Yom Kippur. Have you ever heard of that? Yom Kippur. That was the day. Um, so this was the day, though, of utter terror for the Israelites. They're terrified on this day. Because if the high priest went in there and didn't come out, you guys know that they actually happened. They would, they would tie a belt and a rope uh, to him, uh, and he would go in and they'd have uh, bells on him. And if they stopped, or if they jingled, or if they stopped jingling, whatever it was, they would pull him out. So this was terror because he was going before God on their behalf, offering payment for all of their sins. And so they wondered, is God going to accept this? Am my sins going to be taken care of? And so the high priest, if he came out alive, they'd say, okay, we, we've made it another, another day or we can make it another year. So if he came out alive, it indicated that God had accepted the offering for another year. So that's what it's describing here. Verse 8, the Holy Spirit is signifying this. In other words, the Holy Spirit is unveiling this that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Now what he said here is just that when this functions according to God's design, the system of sacrifices and courtyards, they symbolize or they indicate that the Messiah had not yet come, that this was a shadow these shadows pointed to a something better to come. They pointed to something real. These were the metaphors preparing them for something greater. So if the shadows remain, essentially the message they're giving is that the Messiah hasn't come yet. And that's the problem. Because he had come. 
And so if it just continues, it continues, it's given the wrong message, it needs to conclude. But again, at the time of the writing, the people, they, they hadn't accepted Jesus as the Messiah, so they were still going on in their rituals. That's one of the reasons I believe, again, God destroyed the temple. It's got to come to an end. This covenant is, is, is done. And so that's what he's saying. The purpose of the tabernacle and the, temp, and the temple had to be completed the Messiah couldn't just fit into that system. He would say and create a new covenant. The old covenant could not continue on. We talked about this last week. You can't just fit Jesus into your religious activities. He stops them. He stops them. They're obsolete. They're done. This is the same argument he's made over and over. When the Christ comes, he's not assimilated in. He doesn't just take a, a role in this, new, in this old ritual He's the fulfillment of it. And all these pictures and shadows that are talking of him, he's come, it's done. So accordingly, he says, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation that's verse 9 last part of it verse through verse 10 what he's saying is because that's true because the temple and the tabernacle this system uh, that the jewish people had was merely just a shadow of the promised one that, uh, as long as that's true if you, according to the gifts the, the offerings and the sacrifices they couldn't make anybody perfect before a holy god now, he, he's told us this multiple times, that the Old Covenant was weak. He said that in previous chapters. It was weak. It was useless in terms of its ability to make one perfect before and right before a holy God. So as long as the tabernacle and the temple were functioning, this, this religious activity of, of, of trying to earn again the, 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 just the pay or make your own payment for your sin, as long as that is still functioning the messiah has not yet come and they they, they, just, they they don't understand but they need to that they are not truly sanctified there's no true salvation in these activities and that's what he says those things cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscious the people understand it's just it's just water this is just food this is just a ritual these are symbols at best. The Messiah himself and him alone can save us. I was watching the, this video and, and this lady was arguing about how she pays for her sins. And the guy, the guy just handled it perfectly. He said, okay, well, you've sinned. Well, what do you do with your sin? Well, I go and I do this, I do that, and that. Okay, well, imagine standing before a holy God. Or, or, or let's, let's, let's bring it here. Uh, let's imagine standing before a judge. Yeah, I did this, I did this, I did all these things wrong, and there's a debt to pay for these things. Is he actually going to say that, like, no, or well, uh, you can get off because you haven't sped since, or, you, uh, like, or you, you promise not to do those things again? No, those things have to be paid for. And so it's just an imperfect system. You can't, uh, uh, an unjust or unrighteous person cannot pay for their unrighteous deeds because, or, or for others' deeds, uh, for that matter. They just, they got, they got their own hole to dig themselves out of. So only the Messiah could do this. You guys get it. We'll move on. So the argument is, why would you go back to that old system when you actually have the Messiah? 
He has come. This, this perfect, spotless lamb has, has died, given the perfect sacrifice. Why would you go back to trying to, to this old system that, that just was, couldn't do it, wouldn't cut it? So imagine the average Israelite, they, they would see this area fenced off, this tabernacle, and they know they're not allowed into, to enter this tent. So they're, they're, they're far removed from the presence of God. Only the priest could enter the holy place. But even they understood that even only the high priest and only once a year with his blood offering could go. Now imagine hundreds and hundreds and, and hundreds of years and that's all you've ever known. And then something dramatically changes. Verse 11. But when Christ... Remember, I mean, remember Christ, that, that's not His name. That's His title. He's the Anointed One. When He is the Christ. He is the long-awaited Messiah. So, but when Christ, the Christ, appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, meaning the new covenant, and what did He do? He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Now again, get in your mind this setup of the courtyard of the tabernacle and the holy place and the holy of holies. This whole language of he entered as they've seen priests do their whole life. Hundreds of years these people have, have seen people enter into this tabernacle. And it says that he is entering into the true tabernacle. It says in verse 11, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained or purchased eternal redemption. So they waited and they waited and they waited, and finally the Christ comes, this ultimate high priest who would enter into that holiest of holy places, not made with human hands, but ultimately in the presence of God as the ultimate high priest. You guys remember the kind of the teaser last week in chapter 8, verse 3, talking about this ultimate high priest would have himself make an offering. So now it's defining what that offering is. I mentioned it last week. We didn't get into it. I said, just stay tuned. So here it is. He would go directly into the presence of God, the Holy of Holies, and he's not offering the blood of bulls and goats, which had really, again, no power to make himself or make him clean or wouldn't offer anything else, but he offered himself as a perfect sacrifice, unspotted. He would offer his own blood as payment for sin, and he would place it there on the mercy seat. The mercy seat is literally the Greek for propitiation. He, he would just lay it down there, the satisfaction of God's wrath, all the wrath that was stored up because of all the rebellion, and all the sin and unrighteousness and wickedness that we've all done, all that wrath that was stored up would be satisfied because of the payment that he made. So we learn in Hebrews that Jesus became the propitiation, that the satisfaction, the very mercy seat, upon which payment would be made to satisfy the anger of, and wrath of a holy God. So this is what we're tracking. Jesus is the fulfillment of this. That They've been seeing it done imperfectly for countless years. 
Not again, but he comes in and he doesn't do it just once. He doesn't have to do it daily or, or yearly, but he, he, uh, or he does do it once, but he does it once and for all in order to obtain the purchase, the eternal redemption. That's what he's talking about. That's what, that's what we have learned so far. So, and, and as long as the ultimate high priest lives, his payment for sin is valid. So if he is an eternal high priest, his payment for sin is eternal. It's an eternal redemption. Verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, again, the heifer was sacrifices and the ashes were used to make people clean. If all that, thank you. And the sprinkling those who have been to, uh, to defiled, sanct sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, in other words, if you bought into that the system would work, even impartially, if you bought into these rituals were only a picture of the promise to come and how God would ultimately deal with the external, if you bought into that, it says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So in other words, he's saying if hundreds of years there was buy-in, people accepted that God's strict rules and his regulations and in those things there was a promise of something better. And if you, if you had buy-in on that, that these were just a shadow, these were just symbolic, now that he's here in front of you, buy-in. Be excited. Be, be pumped. This is, this is what you've been waiting for. So the old covenant has served its purpose. It's old. It's obsolete. It's done. And it's replaced by this new covenant that is just heralded and, and brought about by this ultimate high priest who is eternal, who offered himself, his own blood, and it lives forever, once for all, the holy God being satisfying the wrath of God for us who believe. Now again, imagine being an Israelite and for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years you were outside the fence. You were outside the tent. Not even the, the priests had access into this holy of holies except maybe one guy once a year. Now all of a sudden, you're being told that because all those shadows and those pictures have been fulfilled, the Messiah has come and made offering. It is now possible for anyone to go behind the veil. Imagine that. Just if the, if the argument is this. If God offers that, it wasn't just one guy once a year, but anybody, you and you and you, can go now because of what Jesus did before a holy God. You can be in his presence. If that is now available, why would you ever go back and settle for the other? Now, we're going to stop here. Like I said, this is a lot. It's heavy. We're going to stop here. But I want, I want to add that it's almost inevitable as we read through all this right now, and I'm seeing it on your face, people who live in a modern world with computers and jets and smartphones, television, medicines, as we read these verses or have them read to us, there's this tremendous sense of foreignness. Like, this is just old school. I mean... So it sounds like something like from the movie Conan or something. It's just like, like, like we have no concept of this. It's so foreign to us that we might be thinking this is not my world. 
And we feel, maybe we don't say, but we're thinking, what does this matter to us? Was I the only one? We re- so when you read about something like this, when, or you have it read to you, it's something old, it's something strange, it's culturally foreign. You are presented with at least three responses. The first two are bad. I don't want you to respond these way, but I'm going to share them anyways. And then for one, you can say, man, the, the world of this text is so old, it's foreign, it's so strange with its tents and its altars, and you can't even run. You have to run. There's no relevance for my life today. So I'm just going to move on. It, 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 it's, it's outdated. It's too old. It's for those people. It's not for me. That's, that's one way you can respond. Or you can say, well, the truths that really matter in life, Ellis, are, are not historical truths. We don't really care about these historical facts and the way they did these things. But we look for timeless truths that are uh, outside of history. So you, so, so you seek to kind of super spiritualize your circumstances. Say, well, what's my temple today? What's my tabernacle? You know, and who am I allowing to enter just once a year? You mean, you know, whatever it is. You try and stretch it and super spiritualize it, you know, and, and bring it past it and try and find a parallel in your life. Or you can say, and I hope you guys come with me on this, I believe that God governs history and is still revealing Himself to the world by the way He guides and guided history so that one generation to another generation can look and see God's hands. We can see and and learn real facts and characteristics of this God so it's not irrelevant, but it helps me interpret God today. So I hope again we're going to lean that way that these things are even though they're strange or foreign, they give us a glimpse of God. They're strange or foreign, but they reveal something specific. And guys, history is not irrelevant. God came into history. He did real things. He set this temple up with these specific things for a reason because those specific things pointed to something that we would be so interested in today. Just hold on with me. So we ask the question, what does this have to do with us today? It's relevant, guys, to today because there's one thing that modern life, scientific progress, technological advances, psychological therapies, again, medical discoveries, there's one thing that all these things have not made the slightest advance in solving How can people with a stained conscience come or draw near to a holy God? Your sin convicts you. What you did last night makes you feel like you have nothing. You are not allowed before God. What are you going to do about it? Isn't it remarkable? We spend an evening isolated in front of of a computer. We're addicted, as it were, to maybe to work or to pornography, or maybe you're addicted to video games. And the issue at the end of it all is not the wonders of technology or the science, or the issue is how can you now come before a holy God? How can you now stand before your wife or your, or your spouse or your children with transparent love when your conscience is defiled? You know how wicked you are. How can you do it? What are you going to do? And maybe you're not into computers. Pick your own vice. Is it TV? Is it soap operas? Romance novels? Stock market pages? Spirit-numbing music? Whatever it is, isn't it remarkable that the basic problems of life never change? 
they had stained consciousness, consciousness, we do too. Sin is still alive and is still wrecking lives. The circumstances change throughout time, but the basic problems don't change. There's nothing new. We are humans. We have consciousness and that witness to our sinfulness, and they give testimonies of our real guilt. And we know that what keeps us away from God is not just dirty hands or soiled clothes or, 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 or just some altar or some priest. What keeps us from God in our heart is this sin that echoes and it condemns us every time we try to draw near. So you might be really good at turning it off, but it's still there. And your guilt calls you out. It blames you. And how, how are you going to draw near to a holy God? In the old period of history, again, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year, and he would take this, the blood of an animal, verse 7 says. Now, why did he have to do that? Why did he have to take the blood of an animal? It's because the blood stood for the death of that animal. And the death was in place of the priest and the people. It was, that animal died for my sins. And I'm going to kill this animal and present it to you so that maybe I don't have to die for the things that I've done. God counted the blood of the animal as sufficient, temporarily, but sufficient for paying for all the things that these people had done. It was ceremonial at best. But what about the guilty conscience? What about the mind that still told them over and over and over the things they've done? No animal's blood could cleanse that. And they knew it. See Isaiah 53 and Psalm 51. And we know it too, guys. So in the time of Reformation, that's what it says here, this new high priest comes. Jesus, the Son of God. And he offers a better sacrifice. It's actually himself, the Son of God, dying for us. And verse 14 says that the whole Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were involved. The eternal Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, offered himself, Jesus, without blemish to God. That's the Father. The result is that all the sins of his people in the Old Covenant, they were covered by the blood, not of an animal, but of Jesus. The animal only was a foreshadowing of the final sacrifice of this eternal high priest, Jesus Christ. And the death of his son, it reaches back and it covers all of our sin, the peoples in the past and the peoples going forward and, and, and all of God's people. So here we are in a modern age, the age of science and space travel, email, heart transplants, 3D printers, instant replays in baseball, which is new. And our problem, guys, is fundamentally, and this, it's the same as it's always been. Our consciences are condemning us, and it's making us feel unacceptable before a holy God. We are, because of our sin and because of our consciousness, we are alienated from God. We don't feel good enough to come to Him. And no matter how distorted our consciences are, that much is true. We aren't good enough to come before Him. And we could cut ourselves. 
We could throw our children in the sacred river. We could give millions of dollars to some charity or serve in a soup kitchen on Thanksgiving. Hundreds of forms of penance and self-injury, and the result is always going to be the same. The stain remains, and death, when I finally have to face this holy God, is terrifying. We know that our conscience is defiled. And again, it's not with the external things like touching a corpse or holding a dirty diaper or, or a piece of pork. Jesus said that it's what comes out of a man that defiles, not what goes in. We are defiled, guys, by attitudes like pride and self-pity and bitterness and lust and envy and jealousy, covetousness, apathy, fear. All these things that we wrestle with us. I mean, I can, the list goes on. You are in that pool of people. The only answer we have in this modern age, as in every other age, is the blood of Christ. When your conscience rises up and condemns you guys, where will you turn? Are you going to turn to the old covenant and try to heap on good activity to pay for that bad activity? Don't do it. It doesn't work. You can't tip the scales with extra good things. The only thing that covers your sin is the blood of Jesus. When your conscience rises up and condemns you, guys, where will you turn? Hebrews 9 verse 14 gives you the answer. Turn to Christ. Turn to the blood of Jesus. Turn to the only cleansing agent in the universe that can give you relief and peace in death. I've shared my testimony. When I, I grew up in church, I knew all the right answers. I was involved in so many things, but I never really just bought into it. And I, and, and I always just kind of just had this line that I created in my life. I would do all sorts of sinful things, but I had like somehow created this, this new covenant, this, this different covenant, that as long as I didn't do these things, I was okay still with God. And I, and I tricked myself, but I knew I was not right before Holy God. Well, I almost died and I even though I had grown up in church when I was right there on the verge of death I was terrified I knew I deserved hell I deserved it it wasn't wasn't wrong I had chosen it my whole life I had run the opposite way of Christ every I deserved it and I cried out for mercy praise God he's he heard me he saved me he removed all that guilt. And I promise you, I, I, I don't fear it anymore. There, there, that fear is gone because I stand in the blood of Christ. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Do you want your conscience cleansed? Guys, I urge you this morning, and we no longer take it for granted that anybody is not in this position. There are people like our brother from Louisville who needed his conscience cleansed. 
You can't run from it. You can't hide it. The only thing you can do is wash it with the blood of Christ. Turn to Christ. Guys, right now, turn to Jesus and receive the free gift that he has bought at an infinite price. The gift of perfect forgiveness and perfect cleansing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. God, speak to us. Help us. Lord, we are constantly accused by the enemy and by our own conscience. He hurls these insults and these accusations. So many of us do not find rest. God, help us. Lord, help us find rest. Help us not turn back to an old system, Lord, but let us take confidence and find hope and peace and rest in, the, in what you've done, our eternal high priest, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this time. Speak this to our word in Jesus' name. Amen. We don't do this very often, but it's fitting. Do you want your conscience cleansed? Is there something in your life that you have, instead of covering it with the blood of Christ, you've turned to the old covenant and you're just trying to make up for it? That doesn't work. And so your conscience is telling you it is defiled. And you don't feel like you can come before a holy God. If that is you, Confess your sin. Share it. You could come pray with me. Just share what it is. Just ask the Lord for forgiveness. Return back to Christ and say, cover this. Forgive me. Take this from me. Don't hide it. Don't turn to the old covenant in this workspace system. It doesn't work. It won't cleanse your conscience. If you are in that position, if there is something in your life, don't leave this building. Come talk to me. Come forward right now. We, don't, we didn't do this for this reason, but there are aisles. You can just walk right up here. Talk with me. I will pray with you. Chris is sitting right here. Kelvin is sitting right there. If you need someone else to turn to, just come tell me. We will be with you. you turn to Jesus. we just need to pray one more time lord help us give us the courage to do this what profits a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul i ask father you would give us the courage to turn to you this morning once again lord confess our sins and be cleansed as you promise you will do you are faithful to do that first john 1 9 for to cleanse us and purify us from all righteousness unrighteousness we love you, Lord. Give us this time. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to stand here. And I encourage you guys to come talk to me. But you guys are dismissed. Please pray. Go talk to somebody if you have something you've got to get off your chest. You're dismissed.
So did I say you're dismissed? Just kidding. We've got announcements. Guys, I'm really sorry. Uh, there's a missions meeting. Uh, if, if you're still on the, talking about and interested in going to Uganda or just want to be a part of the missions team, a brief meeting. I've got an update about Uganda back here. Uh, and then if you have any questions, I will come back out uh, and, and discuss the backpacking trip. There are a few things that we need. Uh, and if you just don't care what it is, but you want to give and help this backpacking trip happen, please, you can make a designated offering. Just write backpacking trip. There are some things the church has to buy. And unfortunately, in our budget, we didn't separate anything for the backpacking trip. We need some, some equipment. Um, we need and some food purchased and uh, just a few items. So if, you, if you're able to contribute to that, just do a designated offering. Um, but if you're interested exactly what the specific items are after the Uganda's meeting, I'll come out and share them with you guys. But the board is current, um, so check the board out. Are there any other announcements that, are, that I need to share? Sorry, those are, those are two big ones. The backpacking trip, uh, I don't know if we actually told, talked to Tom and Linnell much about it, um, but uh, I'll, I'll give you some information. Um, but I need to know who's coming today. Um, this is the final day. Uh, yeah, so. Love you guys. You gone to missions meeting. I'll come back and talk to you about backpacking trip. Um, and but you're dismissed again. Sorry. All right. Thank you. And I doubt and to know you is to love you and to know so little else I need you. Oh how. Lord.